Hey everyone, thanks for joining. Today I am speaking with Zach Greenberg. Zach is a senior program officer at FIRE. He's a First Amendment attorney, and I've asked him to come on to talk about the work FIRE is doing, free speech, where we're at with free speech, and see where it goes from there. Hey, Zach, thanks for coming on. Happy to come on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so, um, like, I've been following FIRE for a bit, uh, just, you know, I got back to North America around 2014 and that's when I started seeing like basically secular blasphemy laws. And I was wondering what was going on and then started seeing some of the stuff fire was doing, especially in, on campuses and stuff. So if you wouldn't mind talking a bit about that, how you got into working with them or what led you to that and like the kind of work that they're doing. Yeah, sure. Uh, fire is the foundation for individual rights in education. Uh, we are a uh, nonpartisan, uh, nonprofit civil liberties group that defends uh, the free speech rights of professors and students at American colleges and universities nationwide. Uh, we defend the freedom of speech, freedom of association, academic freedom, due process, religious liberty, uh, the essential qualities of human dignity. And we do public schools, we do private schools of higher education. And my role at FIRE is I'm a, a senior program officer for our individual rights defense program. And that entails writing letters to schools, engaging in direct advocacy in behalf of students, professors, and student groups. Um, we do everything from helping schools revise their policies to uh, educating the public, talking to students, parents, teachers, professors, uh, administrators. Um, we uh, lobby legislatures to pass bills that uh, enhance students' rights at universities, and we do do a limited amount of litigation against uh, universities for particularly egregious violations of students' rights. Um, I mostly work with student groups such as fraternities and sororities and other um, and other political groups on campus asserting their rights to free speech and free association, and I work with a lot of professors as well on um, protecting their academic freedom rights and their due process rights, generally to be uh, be notified of the charges and to have an opportunity to be heard prior to punishment. Um, I got into this role because at at my alma mater and at my law school, uh, SUNY Binghamton and Syracuse Law, where uh, where Biden went, um, I fought for students' rights there, and I fought to uh, revise certain policies that infringe students' rights. And here I am, uh, four years later at Fire, and I'm doing the the same work, just trying to fight the good fight and, and defend students, um, you know, regardless of what they say, as long as it's protected by the First Amendment. Okay. Uh, just, okay I, like I said, I've been following it a little bit. Now, I see it, you know, I'll see people saying, oh, you guys only defend the left, or sometimes, oh, you're only defending right-wing people. When, you, when you're working on it, like, is it pretty much even across the board? Like, do you see just as many coming from, you know, the right-wing side and the left-wing side, or is there been a bit of a shift, or, like, how do you see that right now? That's a great question. FIRE is proudly nonpartisan. We will defend your rights as long as you're a student or professor. Uh, regardless of what you say, your, your viewpoint, your political beliefs, your opinions, as long as your expression is protected under First Amendment standards. Um, and this entails us defending a, a wide array of individuals from liberals to conservatives, libertarians, communists, really any imaginable viewpoint that exists in the world also exists on a college campus. And over our 20 year history, we've seen and defended literally all of them. Um, it may be hard to believe that, but you can look at our case archives and they're all, they're all right there. Um, I'd say it's kind of a soup de jour of censorship. 
every day and it seems seems to be almost every hour there is a new you know big story happening uh in america in the world and it seems to be the censorship on college campuses tracks those big stories uh, for example this past year we've had a lot of cases regarding the COVID-19 pandemic uh universities punishing students and professors for speaking out against uh universities handling of the pandemic or generally um, you know, spreading their, uh, whether they perceive to be false information or conspiracy theories about the pandemic. Um, you know, during uh, the year of 9-11, we had a lot of cases regarding uh, that event and regarding support for, for potentially terrorist activities and generally responses to the government um, in that event and the Iraq war and whatnot. And of course, you know, in the intervening years, it seems like any single news story will attract um, inevitable student speech and protests about that news story and inevitable censorship and backlash from the university and repression um, against students and professors talking about that issue. So in terms of whether it's been mostly uh, conservatives or liberals, it's really a, a mixed bag. It's kind of an all the above approach uh, that we've seen. And that keeps it up interesting for me. I kind of I gauge the news each day by the cases that come in and by the students who ask for our help, you know, kind of what's happening on the ground. Because, of course, you know, we only have a couple offices, but we do uh, we take cases at universities nationwide. So we don't only really have people on the ground per se at all these schools, but we are able to to kind of gauge um, temperature at these universities and kind of figure out um, what kind of cases are coming in and how we can best help. Like When I look at some of these things, you know, some of them I just have to shake my head, but those are the ones that I kind of, that, that worry me the most. And I'll give you two examples. There was one, I think it was right after uh, Soleimani was killed and Iran was saying that they might destroy their own historical monuments. And some professor made a joke about, oh, well, if that was the U.S., it's going to be Walmart and Target and stuff like that. Okay. It was, it was just a silly little joke, but he got, I don't know if he got fired, but he got in trouble for that. And then there was another one recently. It was the one in, uh, I think it was uh, USC. The professor was talking about uh, the Chinese word nega. And then, I mean, you know, there's a big uproar about it. I don't think anything happened. Like, do you find those ones are worse? Like, they're kind of like, you look at it and it's like, okay, the guy made a silly joke. Why, why is going on? Or or stuff that you know, gets a little bit more serious, uh, you know, accusations of racism or accusations of, uh, you know, favoritism or like, you know, uh, just trying to think of like you know some like horrible accusations like which cases do you do you find like more worrisome because i mean the silly ones to me seem like why are you wasting your time and your effort on that you know it, and it just like going after something so silly seems like you're it, you know the big stuff i can kind of see you can say okay well that's racist it might be against the first amendment or something but <clears throat> you know making a joke about blowing up your own walmart yeah <laughs> Yeah, no, it's, it's really funny you mentioned that because uh, I think it, you underscore a really essential tenet about discourse, which is that uh, humor and satire and offensiveness is in the eye of the beholder, right? Um, you know, while, while we could sit here and laugh about a professor calling uh, for the destruction of U.S. monuments or Walmarts and Twitter and how ridiculous that is, um, you can understand how perhaps those online, <clears throat> those on Twitter, social media, Facebook, uh, we'll see this as a really serious threat against our nation and, and not a laughing matter at all. And universities, of course, their 
Um, they're, they're large institutions. They're definitely susceptible to public pressure. And of course, when that pressure comes from, from donors, from, from alumni, from their own students and their own educational community, um, they have to react to that pressure. So a lot of cases we see with professors, for example, and students tweeting on social media, doing their, their hot takes, their controversial opinions, <clears throat> it will create this backlash and create this, this large amount of pressure on these institutions to punish their students and professors for their expression. The only issue is that if the institution, uh, if it's a private school, if it promises free speech, and if it's a, a state school, public school, bound by the First Amendment, they are not legally legally allowed to do so. They may not have the authority to punish their students and their professors for their free speech, regardless of what their donors and their alumni and the public wants them to do. So in these situations, we urge the school to have a backbone, to do the right thing, to not throw its students and professors under the bus and to defend their rights even when it is difficult or impopular to do so. Yeah. I mean, like I said, it's, it's those cases that really bug me because if people are getting worked up by what's obviously a joke and you know, like what just happened at the New York times mm -hmm. um, uh, with uh, McNeil, I think the guy's name was, you know, uh, uh, the reporter. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, or that young girl, you know, some guy had a video of her when she was 14 and she was singing a rap song or something. And when she's about to go to college, he brings it out and gets her, you know, like gets her application removed. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. like, like I worry about like the state of like the education, the state of what's, what's being talked about on campus. Like, do you guys get a sense of that? Like of, you know, the, the discussions on campus, like from students itself, not necessarily the administration. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point about saying racial slurs in the N-word. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, when these these words and these words are directed towards an individual, you know, and, and a der with derogatory intent to, to harass them, to threaten them, to demean them, uh, that's obviously, you know, a really terrible thing to do. But the vast majority of the cases we see uh, regarding uh, professors and students being in trouble for using these terms are simply devoid of context. You know, they're not trying to demean anybody or call or be or be racist. They're simply using the word of their professor in, in a pedagogically relevant context, which is quoting um, Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail or quoting other forms of, of literature, sometimes from African-Americans. Frederick Douglass, for example, used the word many times in, in many texts that are standard curricula for English courses. And for students, a lot of times the context is in the form of a song or, or a lyric or, or an, another um, simply repetition of, of, a, of a cultural phenomenon. And so when, you, when, I, when we see professional students getting in trouble for this, um, it's really disheartening because instead of the university using this as a teachable moment to perhaps educate its professors or students on, you know, on the word and, and how in this context to use, they simply uh, punish them. They expel them, they fire them, they don't give them a chance to really uh, explain themselves and to, and to show perhaps the, the public and to the university that this word was used in an appropriate context, such as in a class about African-American literature. Um, we also have a good, bring up a good point of percentage admissions. Um, universities refusing to matriculate students who otherwise would qualify to join the university, but because of what they said when they were, like you said, sometimes young as 14, you know, middle school, um, they, they are now gonna rescind their admissions and not allow them to do so. And at FIRE, we think that this lets the, 
student and the university off easy. It lets the student off easy because instead of um, giving the student a chance to have their worldviews confronted and, and expand their horizons and have their deepest beliefs challenged, which is the purpose of a liberal education, the university is saying, we don't want you here. You know, go back to wherever you came from. We're not going to educate you. The university lets them off easy because they are getting deprived of a chance to do what they do best, which is educate. You know, if you have, if you rescind an admission to a student who is truly a racist, who is truly has backwards views, um, wouldn't the university be the best place for them to, to educate them, to have their beliefs challenged, to perhaps uh, enlighten them and show them the, the error of their ways? I think that it really does a disservice to both the university and to society, and not even mention the student, uh, when universities do rescind their admissions to students that have these, you know, quote unquote, wrong views. I mean, others, because I know, like I mentioned, you do like um, First Amendment uh, law. Uh, this is our arguments. Okay, I'm in Canada, so the First Amendment does not apply to me. We do not actually have free speech in Canada. We have hate speech laws. Um, you know, it's where you guys are like, I think the U.S. has the best law. But do you think the First Amendment in a way is a detriment? Like, I, and the, the reason I'm saying this is I, I think it's the best law out there. I wish we had something like that in Canada. But people can always just point to, well, you know, well, that's not the government. That's a private company. Like having such a strong law gives people the feeling that they don't need to defend the principle in and of itself. Like, mm-hmm. like do you understand what I'm saying? Like, I don't know. That, yeah. That's, that's my takeaway from that. Like from what I'm seeing recently, I'm just like, you know, places where you don't have that strong a law, they really want free speech and you know, you guys have the best law. So like, why don't you defend it civilly? Like, you know, defend it amongst yourselves. Yeah. Yeah. People always say, um, in the argument that like, oh, we have the First Amendment, right? Because the First Amendment, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's fine. No free speech issues. It's like everything's hunky-dory. But I think you bring up a great point about there's the law. There's also the culture. It's also what people actually believe and what people, the norms that they keep when it comes to free speech. And the freedom of speech is much larger than the First Amendment. It really is an entire culture of a set of acts that you can do to promote a, a, a society that treasures the, the value of free expression. Um, for example, um, you know, our, our FIRE's CEO and President Greg Lukianov would always talk about culture of free speech that entails um, not demonizing those that think differently than you do, seeking out people you disagree with and, and having a debate with them. Um, you know, being open to wider views and having, some, having a sense of epistemic humility, knowing that you don't know everything, that people um, are not experts in every single field and that they could possibly be wrong. And this, this humbleness um, really helps an individual explore these new ideas. And, and the converse is that, you know, the, the arrogance that I'm right and everyone else is wrong is a prelude to censorship. That's how we get, you know, these, these egregious policies and laws. Um, so, you know, when, when we're talking about different nations and even different um, societies within college campuses, for example, we always talk about the culture of free speech and what that means and how we can foster it. And I think in any nation with the First Amendment or without the First Amendment, um, you know, they, could, they can do a, a good job of, of upholding the principles of free speech by engaging in these kind of these cultural norms. And when, it's, when we see these norms eroded by people that are just refusing to, to, to look at opposing views and refusing to engage at the side and really refusing to believe that they could be wrong, um, I think that does more damage to, to the law than any sort of you know, court rulings or, or legislation. Um, like I know this is probably going a little bit far from uh, what you do, but when you look at, okay, like 
I've had this happen to myself. I've had YouTube send me an email saying we can't show this video in Pakistan because the government of Pakistan isn't allowing it. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm okay with that. It's not YouTube's decision. You know, Pakistan got a hold of them. But now you're seeing places like China <clears throat> tracking, you know, like so Chinese students coming to the U.S. or Canada or, the, or going to Europe to study. Chinese government's tracking them via social media. The, mm -hmm. <clears throat> I mean, there was a story just out in Canada today. The security force being used at the visa center for Canada in China is manned by Chinese, like Chinese officials, and they track everyone going in getting a visa. So what like, would that become a first amendment issue or would that become a, like trying to get your know, social media companies to you know afford some like how do you get like them to afford protection without taking away freedoms i mean if they're having the chinese government pressure them to get information about people or you know like how like because also you're i mean when you're dealing with something like facebook it's it's global like you know which laws apply to them you know? yeah yeah yeah, no, that's, a, that's an interesting point. Um, you know, we see this a lot with private universities where you have these institutions which are not bound by the First Amendment, kind of like YouTube, Facebook, these for-profit companies. Um, although I should say most universities are nonprofits. Um, and, you know, we can't really make these kind of legalistic First Amendment arguments against them, country arguments, because that they're not bound by that. You know, they can do what they want in terms of that stuff largely. Um, however, they are bound by their policies, their institutional statements, and their code of conduct that that they wrote, that they that they enforce, that they bind their students to. Um, so when we make arguments against these institutions, we say, "Hey, if you're gonna talk a big game, if you're gonna say that you protect free speech, you have to also walk the walk. You have to protect free speech um, when push comes to sub, push comes to shove." Excuse me. And so, you know, we see these private companies on um, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and they all, you know, in a, in a baseline promise to protect free speech. At the same time, they also, like you said, ban a wide array of speech depending on the country, depending on the regulatory scheme they're under, um, you know, within the confines of, of their, of, of where they operate. And to, 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 in my opinion, that seems to be a bit of a, uh, a bit of a bait and switch there. You know, how can you say that you defend free speech when, you censor every single video criti critical of the Chinese government, um, and same thing with YouTube. How can you how can you prof profess to to defend free speech and a whole free speech when at the same time videos that offend some government somewhere in the world, whether it's Turkey or England or Germany or China, um, will get removed? So it's kind of the same thing with the private university. You know, if if you're going to make these statements, you're going to profess to be an institution that that hopes and promises free speech. Um, to us, that means the First Amendment. That means the laws are and the dictates are very clear, which speech is unprotected, which speech you can and cannot punish. And we hold these universities um, to that standard, that if you promise students free speech, they expect rights commiserate with the First Amendment. And if you don't give them those rights, then that's problematic. Um, just want to get off, like, just fear a little bit on this. You'd mentioned you'd gotten out of, uh, I think you mentioned you were at Fiverr for about four years now. Do, when you were in school, do you see it getting like when you're now working with fire, looking at what's going on in universities from when you were in school, do you see it like the support for, you know, free speech, the support for dialogue, the support for debate? Do you see that going down even more? Like I've noticed it. I said, I came back in 2014. I went to school in the late, late eighties, early nineties. And from then I totally noticed like what I'm seeing on campus now, as opposed to when I was there, it's, you know, it's a huge shift. 
but even your, for yourself in that like four or five year span, do you see like a big drop or? Uh, it's it's kind of hard to generalize like that. Like we have done some surveys fire that does show that there is you know, the declining respect and knowledge of free speech principles. You know, there's definitely um, some issues there in terms of, um, you know, students understanding and respecting the First Amendment and, and, and kind of agreeing with it. Um, you know, there's definitely students out there, perhaps a, a large amount that think we should ban hate speech and that, you know, that that we shouldn't allow people to, to spread false information and generally um, support support rise in the First Amendment and, you know, doing away with these these very broad free speech protections that America has into a model like Canada or Europe that has, you know, uh, diluted and, you know, weaker free speech protections. Um, but it really does depend on each college, depends on each, each demographic, each state. Um, you know, it's, it's really hard to generalize across college campuses, generally across age groups. Um, so I can only speak about my experience that, you know, at, at Syracuse Law when, you know, when I was there in 2016, um, I'd say there was a healthy respect for free speech. There definitely, there definitely was some, there were some groups that really did not want to hear opposing viewpoints. They want to bring in opposing speakers, kind of were there for their own purposes, and that's it. Um, and I think in many law schools across America, you, you, you will see a mix of students that um, that really are there to learn and expand their worldview and those that are kind of there just to, to ram their views in other people's throats and to kind of, you know, retreat their echo chambers and, and not really engage in this in this marketplace of ideas um, that is the university campus. So I, it's hard to say what's getting better or getting worse. Um, what, what, I, what I do worry about is that if we have a generation of students that are not really well versed in these principles, these principles of free speech, First Amendment, you know, the cultural norms, um, they're undoubtedly going to bring these these viewpoints into larger society. And so we'll see, you know, their efforts to suppress speech, not only in the university, but in their other groups. You know, these are the future leaders of society. So when they, they enter the fields of, you know, politics, business, law, medicine, um, we do worry that they're going to they're bring these, you know, these hostile views towards free speech um, into these organizations and, 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 and spread them. I mean, like kind of seeing with this, I'm trying to remember what year it was. It might have been 2018 or 2019. I think ACLU was doing, um, I don't know if FIRE was involved, but I know the ACLU was involved. They were doing like a, a tour, um, like a free speech tour or something like that. And you had groups on campus coming up and saying that, you know, they're calling it right wing. They're calling it white supremacist, uh, you know, ideals. They're saying, oh, that's, you know, only white supremacists like free speech. When did that start coming up? Because, I mean, you know, free speech was always a left-wing thing, if you want to, you know, like, I, I don't like the left-right thing anymore. It doesn't make much sense because it's just kind of so blurred. But, you know, like, wait, when did that kind of shift happen? Like, oh, you know, like, I don't remember white supremacists being too up on, like, freedom of expression. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting because... You're right. Free speech used to be a very a left-wing viewpoint that, you know, the right was trying to suppress, you know, pornography and unpatriotic acts and, you know, other, you know, uh, the very conservative censorship part of, part of speech. And the left was saying, no, we should have the right to, to you know, criticize the government and to have sexual expression. Um, and now it seems to be reversed because now the, many on the left are saying, you know, we shouldn't have the right to um, express views that are considered uh, racist or sexist or hostile towards minorities. Um, and so I think it goes to show that like um, people do not want to hear views they disagree with. 
people don't want to give free speech rights to those that disagree with. It's kind of the principle of free speech. So you have to give um, these rights to those that, you know, oppose, oppose you. And the point that fire makes is that the first amendment of free speech has always been on the side of the, the ethnic, religious, the political minority. You know, you can go back to, you know, the founding of our nation, you go back to the abolitionist movement, civil rights movement, the gay rights movement, the women's rights movement. These are all civil rights movements that exist because of a robust First Amendment. You have people like Frederick Douglass and MLK out there saying without the First Amendment, you know, we'd be doomed. It'd be even more difficult than it is already to fight for change. And so, you know, when we hear these arguments that free speech is a tool for white supremacists and a, and a tool for, um, you know, racists to, to expound their viewpoints, um, we simply say that, look, you know, the First Amendment has always been used to oppose those in power, to, to, to oppose the majority viewpoints, to allow minorities in any sense of the word um, to, to have a voice. And if you're wealthy or powerful, you don't need free speech because your right to speak is protected by your wealth and your power. Um, it is a tool for minorities to um, advocate the changes that they believe would be the best for society, like civil rights. And it's a tool for really all of us to have an equal voice and to, you know, and, and to really advocate for whatever passions that drive us. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a very natural, you know, reaction to say that those who disagree with me that have opposing views should be censored, should be able to talk. But, you know, we like to remind people that if you give the government that power, um, it's pretty clear how it's going to be used. You know, it's going to be used by those critical of the government, um, which is, which has historically been, you know, uh, journalists, religious figures, uh, po minority politicians, revolutionaries, um, you know, really any sort of any sort of minority in any country, they're the people that are going to be um, really censored and oppressed by um, these new restrictions on free speech. Um, this okay. This is like okay, free speech is about the only dog I have in any fight. So <laughs> that I, I just you know, I'm like, if you can't talk about it the rest just doesn't matter. Like if you can't have that discussion. So that's why I kind of harp on this. And it's like this idea of harm, uh, you know, Oh, if you say that that's going to cause harm to that person or that community. It, again, I, you know, I, when I left, I left in 2002 and it was you know pretty much the, you know, I may not agree with you, but I'll defend your right to say it. And I came back. It's like, you know, I come back and I see a video from a journalism professor. I think it was at Missouri State uh, or wherever, and she's calling for muscle to remove a student journalist yeah. from a protest. I'm like, I'm like, if she's teaching journalism, what's going to happen with the next crop of reporters? And then you see the New York Times now, and you kind of guess, well, gee, I wonder where that came from. Uh -huh. So, like, like, yeah. like that that idea of harm. When did that? I mean, I'm not, it's not that I want people going out there being you know assholes to everyone, but I. I but like this idea of harm, like, is that what a university is supposed to be about? Like having ideas that challenge you, make you think, I mean, if it's just pablum going down, like, what's the point? Like, why are you paying 60,000 a year for that? Yeah. 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 It's funny. Cause you know, you hear the old nursery rhyme, right? Sticks and stones can break my bones. But words can never hurt me. That's not really true though. Right? Like I think we can all agree that words are incredibly powerful. They can really, really hurt someone. They can drive them to, to anger, to madness. They can pe get people to kill themselves. They can inspire whole movements. Words are like all we have, right? Words are like the most important thing out there. And so, you know, there's no denying the power of words. And of course, that is of course the power to to do harm and to hurt people. It's definitely up there. And I think the, 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 the real question is what is our response, right? What is our response to really harmful words? Um, is it going to be censorship and violence and 
prison and jail, or is it going to be more speech? In a fire, we always say the answer to speech you don't like is more speech. Um, if, you, if you teach students from a very early age that they have to call the cops whenever they someone says something they dislike, or you have to call the administrator whenever somebody um, insults them, um, that's the kind of person you're breeding. That's the kind of culture that you're raising, that we need to respond to bad speech with with violence and censorship and 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 you know and and government sanctions. Um, Fire believes in the strong student model that students are are wise enough to 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 understand um, hateful speech. They're mature enough to counter it, and they're definitely smart enough to to understand opposing viewpoints and research and and kind of have these wild back and forth debates about these in, that increasingly important public issues. And so we urge students, we urge universities to foster a culture. Where, where debate and dialogue is wide open and that um, inevitably you, you are going to get, you know, harmed and insulted and, and perhaps, you know, there's going to be some mental anguish there about confronting those with, with divergent beliefs. But that's, that's kind of the, the, the rite of passage. It's kind of the, the training ground for being a leader in a democratic society that it's hard to really do anything. Um, fight for any viewpoint you want without getting insulted and ridiculed and, you know, being uh, exposed in the court of public opinion. Uh, my my grandfather would, would, uh, would used to say that um, there was always condemnation for those with high spirits. Really, anything you advocate for, anything in the world, you will get, um, you know, criticized for, regardless of whatever it is. And so the answer is either, you know, shrink away from it and, and not do it or, or go out there and, you know, and, and, and stand by and stand by your statements and really, you know, fight, fight the good fight. And so, you know, we, we have a lot of, you know, literature and, you know, the, the harm for alleged hate speech and, and how to, um, and how to combat it and know what the answers are. But in general, we just believe that the answer is more speech. I mean, I don't know if you can answer this or not, but do you think it, like part of the problem is education? Like I was looking at some of the stats and I was just speaking to someone about this, uh, and, I think there's only two states that require a civics course to graduate from high school. Mm -hmm. So the rest of it's got kind of mixed into social science and stuff like that. Do you think that plays a big part of it? Like, I mean, that's one thing I'm seeing. I mean, you see it here in Canada. I've, you know, I see it, I hear about it in the States where it's, you're almost ashamed of your past. I mean, like I'm seeing that in Europe as well. Like it's uh, the, like the way they look at the past, especially in Canada. Now it's, it's all about, how we, you know, genocide committed against First Nations. And I'm not saying hide that, like, I don't want, you know, but speak honestly about it. And it's, you know, like, they, they want to hide the past. I think it was in Sweden, the foreign minister said, what has happens if the Swedish culture dies? Who cares? It doesn't matter. You know, like, or what's going on at the universities in the UK right now? Uh, Leicester University wants to get rid of Chaucer, and I think they want to get rid of, like, their whole medieval English department. I mean, mm -hmm. like, is there a problem in education that needs to be looked at? Like where you're afraid of your own past, you're kind of embarrassed of it. Like for some reason or other, like you're like, if you don't have a connection to the past, how can you connect to those ideals that made your country? Yeah. It's an interesting thing that's happening because, you know, of course, part of free speech is that you, you know, you want to question, you know, your culture, your society, your views, you question your orthodoxy, you know, try to make your society better. And of course, fire doesn't, you know, take any any stance in the content of the issues that we defend. You know, we're not going to come out and say that some issues are good or bad or whatnot. You know, we're, we're simply to defend free speech, not partisans. Um, but I, I think it is interesting how students are being taught from a young age, whether it's high school or you know, freshman year college onwards, 
that you know they they should not pursue a wide range of knowledge. They should simply uh, be taught to think what they think, and you know be taught that there's only you know one right answer and, and one way forward, and to kind of go through life that way. I think that thing that's very harmful, especially for a young person, to kind of be um, so solidified in their views that they can't go to college and have their worldviews questioned and kind of have the classical liberal education where they are exposed to whatever viewpoints make up their own decisions. Um, you know, I'm not going to call it like brainwashing or anything like that, but definitely seems to be some effort in some colleges and in high schools to, to for students to to really only have one viewpoint when it comes to these really controversial issues um, that students should undoubtedly be free to think for themselves on. Um, this is like you said happening across the world, where you know you, you see you see some programs almost designed for students to have this very singular viewpoint. And so at Fire, you know, we have um, you know we have a large case. Um, I guess a case archives against compelled speech. Um, universities telling students that uh, you have to sign a form saying, I believe in this, I believe in that, I believe that, uh, for example, race is a social construct or that this is unstolen land or whatnot. Um, and so we fight against, we fight back against that. We say that, look, your job is to teach students um, how to think, not what to think. And that as adults, they have the right to not be forced to, you know, swear loyalty oaths and to, and to state their viewpoints out there and to swear that I believe this as a condition for continued education. Yeah, no, like, like I said, I'm, I'm looking at this and I'm just, I still shake my head, like where, where is some of this stuff coming from? Okay. I, I, the whole harm that you're going to do with, with speech and you have to stop it because you might hurt someone. Like I, and I've made this argument with a couple of people. I'm like, take a look at uh, the Islamic world. So the Middle East, more so than anywhere else. You had, you know, around 1100 AD, just before the Mongols came in, like the, the shift happened where they, even some of their own thinkers, they stopped teaching them in the Middle East. They said, you know, they, they were exiled and they you couldn't, I think still to this day, there are people like Abros and Avincenna that you can't read in the Middle East. You can't study mm -hmm. there. So you had that come in and you you can see like you know how many Muslim Nobel prizes prize winners are there you know mm -hmm. you can like there's nothing made in the Middle East I mean they they pump oil out of there like there's no inventions that come out of there recently you had um, you know something coming out with uh, with LIGO like if you follow the science stuff like the gravitational uh, lensing uh, telescope there was a Muslim involved with that but like, again, is education where they don't show parts of the world. Like, you know, sometimes I feel like, you know, Canadians, but I think Americans to more of an extent, like, you know, no insult meant to Americans, or they think everyone's got the First Amendment, everyone's got first free speech. They don't realize that it's, you know, it's a very special thing that you guys have down there. And like, you know, yeah. like, is it just maybe, I, I used to joke when I came back from Afghanistan that, you know, send some of these high school and college kids to Kabul for a month or so and let them see how it's like out there. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Yeah. Is uh, it, is it just not exposure or is again, maybe like education or what? I don't know. No, that, that, that's a good point. Yeah. I think a lot of Americans, you know, especially with the COVID pandemic haven't traveled abroad that haven't really experienced other cultures. Um, you know, we think it's a good thing that people look at other sides and say, look what's happening here. You know, we have our home and abroad project of fire where we do examine, the the you know the free attitudes of these different countries of of their um of their laws and their policies and how they affect universities and it's a whole wide world out there and they most of the world and mostly throughout history um there's really no respect for free speech um you know our, my uh, Greg Viganov calls it the eternally eternally radical idea 
that we shouldn't burn people at the stake for having different beliefs. You know, it's really only recently in America, and of course, you know, recently in many parts of the world, that they're they're still not executing people for what they believe, and that the that the beliefs go against what society believes. Um, so it is kind of a crazy concept: the First Amendment, the freedom of speech, the right to you know express ourselves, and is very unique in America. And um, you know, it's kind of why we fight to preserve it. That you know, we have this very, very unique freedom that we think is responsible for a lot of really good things in our society, especially in college campuses. You know, the 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 quintessential marketplace of ideas where students are to be expected to have these debates and discussions and really develop their leadership skills and, and expand their worldviews. And you know, it's really a shame that many countries out there simply don't have that or don't respect it. And um, you know, at, at Fire, you know, we fight to preserve the First Amendment on college campuses because it's so rare and because it's so fleeting. And we feel that even like these, these what people consider to be minuscule attacks on the First Amendment, you know, one student expelled for one thing they said, um, really affects all of us. That if the university can get, get away with punishing people for their beliefs, then you know that's just the canary in the coal mine. You know, if that's going to be okay, if you're going to pardon that offense, then you know who knows what's next. It really is a slippery slope, um, seeing how how fragile free speech can be. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I just I don't get it. I mean, I'm looking at all these things. The like what I just that you know oh well it's just, oh it's just a student he he didn't he didn't get on a committee or something like you know or she didn't get on a committee it's like what's the big deal like, they're still in school it's like it's those deaths by a thousand cuts like where you're not respecting it's like okay then what's your line like where is where are you gonna draw the line so you can't be on this like you can't stop and it just. That's uh, again, like I, I, I hate the arguments of it. So it's a private company; they can do what they want. Um, you know, especially when it's social media. I think we should. Like I, I, if I had the, if I was qualified to do it, I'd do it. I'd say, you know, we need, um, we need someone to do an Areopagitica 2.0. So take the arguments Milton made yeah. for the printing press and update them for social media because I think we really need that. Um, yeah, hundred percent. You know, I mean, yes, Twitter's privately owned, but. You know, if a bunch of people stop me from stop speaking on a on a corner outside, like public space, they're just, but oh, you can go speak wherever else you want. But no, you've taken away my right to speech by stopping yeah. me from speaking there, and that's what, how I kind of equate Twitter. I mean, you know, it's it is our public space, and like I, again, I, I just see it slipping every way everywhere, and people are just letting the little things slide. I'm like, don't let the little things slide, like you know, like the the, the professor who got fired for saying you know our monuments are the WalMarts, like. Just silly thing, but the guy lost his livelihood for that. Yeah, he shouldn't. Yeah, it matters at least to one person. It matters at least to the guy who got expelled or got fired for their beliefs, and it matters everyone else. But uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's definitely an interesting point. How like you know you have these social media companies, Twitter and Facebook, that are like the public square, right? There are how people communicate. Your president of the United States issuing executive orders through Twitter. Um, you know, it's definitely like how people get their news. And if people look to Facebook or Twitter as a source of news, as a source of like this for society is, then Twitter is suppressing those beliefs. Twitter's filtering out information and taking people off that for having bad beliefs. It paints a very distorted picture of society. It really, it really paints a, a misrepresentation of what um, is on there. Twitter can curate its content to only have, you know, no hate speech, no Nazis or whatnot. Um, so it's really a distorting effect, kind of like you know what China and and um, and and uh, Turkey are doing. That you know the purging, their uh, academies, universities of academics that have that have opposing views, and so naturally you have these research papers and and scientific studies coming out praising the government 
and you know how can we really trust what they have to say um, when there's literally no one there who can speak out against this because if they were there they would get you know imprisoned or, or you know or, or fired um, you know ha- uh, academic freedom is kind of like the filtering process right based on this back and forth of ideas, you can arrive at the truth, right? We have these discussions and, and based on all these different debates, we're able to figure out, we're able to divine what the actual facts are. But if you distort the process by suppressing people's free speech and by saying some views are off limits, then how can you really trust the results? Yeah. Um, just want to, like I said, I don't want to keep you too, too much longer. But I want to ask you one last thing and it's again yeah, about, sure. about the education. Did they stop? Okay. So liberal, liberal democracy, so enlight, you know, democracy is based off the Enlightenment. We're the only ones that will go back and look back and say, you know what, uh, like in the U.S., like slavery was wrong, what happened to Natives was wrong. In Canada, we can look back at everything that was done to the First Nations. You know, the U.K. can talk about colonization. And we can look back at ourselves self-reflectively and try to improve. But, you know, is China, China like bans everything about Tiananmen Square. They, you're not allowed to say Taiwan, uh, you know, like what, there are people who don't know any people living in China that don't know about the, the Uyghurs. Yeah. So, like, can't you push that message? Like, I don't know, like how, how you could do it, or maybe, I mean, obviously fire's got a lot on their plate, but it's, you know, where the story is not that we're perfect. The story is the progress that's been made. And it's like, okay, America founded 1776, you know, no matter what Nicole Hannah Jones says, um, you know, a hundred years later, slavery ends. You know, it takes another 100 years or so for all Jim Crow and like Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act and taught like, you know, shouldn't that story be the story of progress and how it's gone and how we actually like we do look back and say, you know what, we were awful people back then. Let's try to do better. Um, yeah. I don't know if, again, like it's an education thing or, you know, maybe we need more after school specials or something. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It's interesting. Um uh, it's, it was really easy to censor things, make them disappear, um, you know, 200 years ago, right? You have like Alexander the Great writing propaganda about his campaigns, you know, a thousand years ago. And it's really easy to kind of erase history because there was really no internet. There was no, you know, written word. It's kind of like, all right, well, what, what we have is these guys who obviously were the victors who wrote their stories and we have anything else. But in today's day and age, even with China's Great Firewall and censorship, it's really, really hard to completely erase something. Um, and so you have these situations where people do try to, you know, erase and reform their history and, and try to forget, you know, some embarrassing incident in their national history. Try to go and Tiananmen Square is a perfect example. And it lives on, you know, it lives on and collect the memory of the nations that do have free speech, that do allow their citizens to learn about this thing. And so it almost creates a Streisand effect where you have the fact that someone tried to censor it, now it's blowing up. Now people are even more acutely aware of Tiananmen Square and more acutely aware of America's history with race and, and our, you know, our national founding um, because of efforts to suppress it. And I think it's a really beautiful concept because it kind of goes to show that in this day and age, you know, free speech will win out, that the, the collective conscience will remember. And that despite the best efforts of the most powerful institutions in the world, to, to suppress these these viewpoints and to really um, erase history, um, it's simply, it cannot happen, you know, with the internet and with, you know, the written word and, and with, uh, you know, the, the advent of history, modern history, um, it, it's just, be, it, become, it becomes a very difficult job for the censor to, to, to really thoroughly and adequately center somebody or some idea. Okay. 
Well, thanks. Um, like I said, I don't want to keep you too long, but uh, if you want to let know, uh, if you want to let people know where they can get a hold of you, and if you got any last words of, you know, how to get people to think about free speech, please go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. I'm a big fan of Canada, especially your hockey teams. Um, <laughs> it's, it's my favorite sport. I'm, you know, Long Island Islanders fan, but you guys always beat us. So uh, hopefully, take it easy the next, next couple of years. Um, and yeah, for more, for to learn more about fire and about free speech, visit our website at thefire.org. Um, we have information resources. You can contact with us if you are a student or professor who. Um, it, who has, uh, I believe, the rights are violated, please get in contact with us. Like I said, the fire.org, we're happy to review your case and see if we can help out. And, um, and, and like I said, I really appreciate you, you having me on and having this discussion. Well, thanks a lot. And thanks everyone for listening. I'll be back.